This is our series, Identity Crisis, Who Does God Say That I Really Am? And we have three or four more weeks left of this series where we have been identifying the fact that uh, what you see as your self-worth and your self-value is connected very intimately to who you believe you are. And God has told us very clearly who we are in Scripture. He has told us who all humanity is, that all humanity is made in His image, that all humanity is fearfully and wonderfully made, that the human person is a marvelous, marvelous and unfathomable thing, really. But who we were made to be has been distorted because of sin. So in the first chapters of the Bible, you see that God created us in His image. You see that God gave us a great responsibility before Him in a perfect environment, uh, Eden. And so t- sometimes we talk about an Edenic-like uh, setting. Well, that's based on the real Eden. And it was perfect And unfortunately, we messed it up because God gave one tree from which you are not to eat. And as I pointed out in our first week in this series, that the reason God did that is though he gave us great delegated authority, God always wants us to remember as creatures that our authority is always just that. It is always delegated and it is circumscribed by God, that God is the one who is always ultimately in control. We don't do whatever we want. We do what he says. And he reminds us of that at creation, and we fail the probationary test, as we all all know. And so as a result of that, the Bible tells us then some of the things that happen to us in our perspective on ourselves, on him, on others, on the world. And that can all be summarized in the word distorted, distortion. Our perspective now on everything we see, ourselves, God, others, His world, is now distorted. So the way I like to see the entirety meta-narrative of the Bible story is this, that it involves three things. It involves creation, which then is who God is and what He expects from us. In creation, He's the creator and we're the creature, and He tells us how we relate to Him. So there's creation, or I, the fancy term I use for that is orientation. God gives his creatures an orientation to himself and to his world. So that's the first of the three. But the second of the three is then the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world. And that, as I said, distorts what God had made us to be in the orientation that he gave. So in the fall, sin, sin is, creation is who God is and what He expects from us. Sin is who we are and what our problem is. That's the fall, and the fancy word for that instead of orientation is disorientation. So we are now disoriented, and everything is distorted. And you see it right away in Genesis chapter 3 when that first sin occurs, and you see that they are blaming God, and you see that they're blaming each other, and you see that God pronounces a curse upon the physical environment as well. And so the way we relate to the creation around us, each other, to God, the way we see ourselves, all of it has become disoriented, all of it distorted. Creation, orientation, who God is and what He expects from us. The fall, that is sin, who we are and what our problem is, that's disorientation. 
And then the third thing, thankfully, if God leaves it there, we're in a world of hurt. But thankfully, uh, God doesn't leave it there because the third thing is then redemption, creation, fall, redemption. And redemption is what God is doing about it. And the Bible's story then is what God is doing about it. It's a narrative, it's a story about what God is doing to restore, redeem His world to what it was originally made to be. So you start the Bible in the book of Genesis, you end the Bible in the book of Revelation, and they are literally, they are like bookends because you find a tree of life in the Garden of Eden, and guess what? When you get to the last book, you find a garden with the tree of life again because God has come full circle. God has brought it back to what He originally made it to be, and that's what He is doing. He's doing now. And He said, this is how I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that through a human being that's going to come through the seed of the woman. He said that in Genesis chapter 3. And then he began to keep track of that seed going forward. Genesis chapter 5, that's why you have these genealogies. And so-and-so begat, and so-and-so begat. If you've got a King James Version, it's begat, begat, begat. And that's why you've never gotten through reading your Bible, because you got to chapter 5, and you got to all the begats, and you go, I can't, I can't do it. But the begats are actually, believe it or not, important. Because God's, not, God's keeping track. And God keeps track of, in particular, a son of Adam. All of us are sons and daughters of Adam, ultimately, but a son of Adam named Seth. And then you have a Sethite named Noah. And Noah and his family, Noah and seven others, are spared from God's destruction of, of the world. And then out of, out of um, his sons, out of... Ham, Shem, you have a Shemite that comes, or a Semite, uh, the first Hebrew named Abraham. And we're introduced to him at the end of Genesis chapter 11. But just before Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 10, guess what you got? You got this a bunch more begats and a bunch more descent. Why? Because God's keeping track. And then you get to Genesis chapter 12, and God narrows it down now to a man and his progeny as to how he's going to do this third thing, redeem. So God narrows it down, Genesis chapter 11 and 12, to a, a particular man and his lineage, Abraham. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And God says in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, Genesis 49, 10, that this one that I promised back in Genesis chapter 3, that the solution is going to come through a human being, through the seed of the woman, and I'm keeping track of this whole seed? Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, out of those 12 tribes, a particular tribe is going to give rise to this promised one, the, the tribe of Judah. So he's going to come out of, out of Judah. So God gives us progressively more information. As he goes forth, he tells us uh, where he's going to be born. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And, of course, we know that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. That's God's overarching story. That's what God's doing in His world. So it's creation, who God is and what He expects from us, orientation. It's the fall that is sin, who we are and what our problem is. And then, thankfully, it's redemption, what God is doing about it. And what He's doing about it is through Jesus Christ. And so He's going to restore His world, and He's in the process of doing that. So you've got an orientation and a disorientation, and in redemption you have reorientation. God's reorienting His world. Now, what's that got to do with identity crisis? Well, you need to know where you fit into that. 
If you're a child of God through Jesus Christ, then He is doing His redemptive work in you individually. He's renovating, refashioning you. He's conforming you, to use biblical language directly, He's conforming you to the image of His Son. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. So the image that's been marred and distorted, He's restoring in you. So here's what the Bible's telling you. You're messed up. You were made to be a mirror to reflect me back to me, and now when I look at you in the mirror, I see cracks all over the place, and it's distorted. And what I'm doing is repairing the cracks. God is in the, mirror, the, the crack mirror repair business. And some have bigger cracks than others, and some have acquired those cracks because of things that they've done directly or things that have been done to them. But either way, every person in this room, you're made to be a mirror imaging God back to God, and you do not do it. None of us do. We do not do that accurately. And God's redeeming it. Part of the way that God's redeeming it is He is sanctifying His people. Sanctifying His people. Now, that word sanctify means set apart. God is in doing the work as He redeems, as He restores. He's doing the work of making you and me what we were supposed to be like. He's sanctifying us, the sanctification process. Now, here's the thing I want you to know about the sanctification process. See the top of page 24? The first line says, Sue and Ken are struggling. Their marriage is tense and stressful. Well, why is that? <laughs> That's because Sue and Ken live in a fallen world. Sue and Ken are fallen. Sue and Ken are both cracked mirrors. And they both bring their cracked mirror stuff into the marriage. And so now we've doubled our trouble. Instead of just me having my cracked stuff and you having your cracked stuff over there, let's bring both of them together and bring it under one roof and now let's have a bunch of cracked mirror stuff going on. And if we have kids, we'll have even more. So because of this whole dynamic, you're living in a fallen world and God is actively redeeming His world and in particular in His people, He is refashioning us into the image of Jesus. But because all of that's true, here's the deal. You're either currently struggling or, well, you are currently struggling. Let me just say it that way. The question is, do you know how to handle the struggle biblically? The question is not, do you have struggles? I already know that. I know you do. Because you live in the same fallen world I do, and you're a fallen person just like I am. So I know you have struggles. The question is, do you know what to do with them? Do you know how to handle them biblically? That's the sanctification process teaching you and me how to handle the struggle, the inevitable struggle that goes with being in a fa fallen people in a fallen world, how to handle it. But sanctification is a process. And that's the part that it's absolutely true, but it's also the part that people don't like. 
Because we don't want sanctification to be a process. We want it to be instantaneous. And in evangelical Christianity, we do lots of stuff to give you the false idea that it can be instantaneous. In the first hour, I was talking about how people you know, come to Christ and sometimes we try to manipulate it and force it. And so they might walk an aisle or something like that. There might be you know, emotion going on. There's great emotion and you have this emotional release and all of that. And okay, I've laid it all at the altar and everything's going to be different. I don't, I don't want to show of hands. I already know the answer. Anybody here had that happen where, you know, you, you raised your hand, you signed the card, you walked the aisle, whatever it is, and then everything was fixed after that? Is that right? We know, I know we know better. But we give that impression, okay, so what's the solution? It's not fixed. Well, then, maybe I didn't do it right the first time. So walk the aisle again. I'm not making any of this up. Churches that just walk the aisle, sign the card, make the, renew the commitment, this is the ministry. You keep doing this in hopes that one of these days it's going to take. And if it's not at church, it might be at church, but if it's not at church, it's definitely at camp. Go to camp to have the evangelists come and get your batteries charged again. You're running on empty, man. You've got to get your batteries charged. You go to camp and you come back. You're ready to... Or go to a promise keeper's rally if you're a man. I'm not against all of them. I'm not saying they're evil. By I'm not, none of that. I'm just saying this is the f- approach to sanctification that we take. Go to something, get jazzed, and then you get about you know, two months into it if you last that long, and you're like, man, when's that next promise keeper's rally? <laughs> Because i got to get charged up again. It's not until next year. What am I going to do? Do they have like smaller ones, regional ones? Event sanctification harms people. The idea that sanctification is instantaneous, it's in an event, harms people. Because it ain't true. Sanctification doesn't come in an event. It does not come in what some have called the higher life. You get kind of on a higher spiritual plane. You're resting in Jesus in this higher spiritual plane. Some of our old hymns that were written during when this was really going, still is, lots of strains of it out there, but when it was really going, some of our hymns say, there is a place of quiet rest near to the heart of God. A place where sin cannot molest. I've never found that place. Sin always finds me. I have never found the place that sin cannot molest. But that's the higher plane idea, the victorious Christian life idea. And we got Christians searching for it, trying to find it, trying to get the magic bullet. I got to walk the aisle the right way this time. I got to say the formula the right way this time. And here's the thing, guys and gals. What every one of us needs, this is what God teaches in his word, is a relationship with him through Jesus Christ that he begins and he progressively works. And you gradually, gradually become more like Jesus. Gradually. 
progressive sanctification. And you take three steps forward and then you sin another step back. But the trajectory for the Christian is upward, but it's not, the, it's not you know, a rocket. It's not a straight line. It's jagged, but it's moving forward. That's what the Bible presents. And so when it says at the top of page 24 that Sue and Ken are struggling, nobody should be surprised at that. But if you, in your church environment, have gotten the idea that, no, I'm supposed to be living on this higher plane, you know, pastor, he didn't struggle. My wife's back here. She could disabuse you of that notion. I see all these families, they're all so happy. None of them struggle. Listen, they all struggle. The difference is some know how to handle it. The difference is some struggle and some don't. That ain't the difference. All struggle. The question is, how do I handle it? That's what sanctification is. That's what a lesson like this is about. Sue and Ken, but you fill in your name. If you're married, fill in your spouse's name. If you're not, just put your name there. Struggling, true, for all of us. Their marriage is tense and stressful. They have sought counsel from their church many times. Notice, many times. But no lasting change. It was difficult for them to define the source of the problem, usually describing communication issues. Communication is the number one presenting problem that people bring for counsel. Hands down. Now, notice the way I say that. It's the number one presenting problem. Because the presenting problem, that means the presentation. That's what presents itself. And so when you come and you say, you know what, I think we just don't communicate. We need to learn how to communicate. And that's the number one presenting problem, but it's not necessarily the real problem. Because what if there's a deeper problem going on with both of you? The Bible teaches there is a deeper problem with all of us. So we've got a deeper problem. So now we teach you how to communicate better. So what that could mean is you just get better at driving the, the conversation where you want it to go. You're a more skilled, sinful person now in how you communicate. So in our counsel for people, the first thing we focus on should not be skills. We need skills. We need to know how to do stuff. But you don't go there first. Because skill without heart change is dangerous. Skill without character is dangerous. The person who knows how to do stuff but doesn't have character, look out for that person. This is why you see so many uh, pastors fall. Because we focused on their skills more than their character. So he can preach. He can run an organization. He can get up in front of people and draw a crowd. So we focus on the skills before the character, and then down the road we got a problem. You see it happening all over evangelicalism. In our pastors and training program, we have three things that we try to teach pastors and training, three in this order. Character, theology, skills. Skills are last. You get a politician 
who has skills but not character? Bill Clinton had skills coming out of his ears. Character, not so much. I'll just say it goes on. I'm not being partisan here, okay? That was a Democrat. You guys know any Republicans who might be like that, say, in recent, of recent vintage? Skills without character. Recently, middle of that first paragraph, Sue was encouraged at Ken's desire to attend a small group at church, hoping this community would help heal their marriage. Unfortunately, it all unraveled after Ken belittled Sue's cooking in front of the group. Ken was, and by the way, why do we have to have, why does it have to be a Ken in here? But nonetheless, <laughs> Ken, was, Ken was complimenting the food prepared by the hosts and shared, maybe you can give Sue some cooking lessons. She burned the dinner so bad last night that the dog didn't even want it. Go figure, Sue was hurt and defensive. I was busy taking care of four kids, doing laundry, trying to cook dinner. I lost track of time. If only I could get some help from my husband, maybe I would be a better cook. The ugliness of their marriage was on full display. On the way home, Ken said, we're never going back. The hope the small group offered to their marriage was over. Sue was heartbroken and is seeking help. So how should the gospel impact a couple's interactions in the heat of conflict? What does Sue need to know to help her navigate through this type of situation without feeling like a doormat. Now, what we're going to see together in the pages that follow, I warn you, is hard. And it's especially hard for the offended person. And the pages that follow are actually more going to focus on the offended than the offender. The offender here is Ken saying that about her cooking in front of everybody, and then she reacts as she did. Now, she could have, and we're going to see, should have reacted in a different way. But we're going to focus on the offended, which may seem weird, but here's why. This Ken guy, we already know he's a jerk. And we're going to see his heart, his heart is hard. In fact, the second paragraph, after examining Sue's response, Ken's heart is hard. Progress will only come with repentance. So we already know that. So how, this is going to focus on how we can help her live with that. But you're going to see it's hard, especially for the offended. So it's especially hard when you're right. <laughs> it's especially hard when you're the person who actually has the spiritual upper hand. And, and counselors who just try to play, my mom used to do this, she used to drive me crazy. You know, if my brother did something wrong to me and and I certainly did things wrong to him as well, but when he did something wrong to me and I needed justice from my mom, my mom would say, oh, she loved doing this. Well, you both were wrong. And I come away feeling violated. We need justice here. My brother needs to pay for what he, for what he did. But that's, that's an easy way to say, well, you know, everybody sins. And so we all, yeah, everybody sins. We're not equally sinning in this situation. And in this situation, they're not equally sinning. Ken's got a bigger spiritual problem than Sue has. Sue's the one that we can actually try to make some headway with until he comes to, until he comes to repentance. So it's really hard when you're in a situation with someone who is not cooperative, you're not on the same page spiritually. What do you do? We've got a book, I think, in our resource center. Every time I say this, I say, I think, in our resource center because 
but it's called uh, How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong. How to Act Right When Your Spouse Acts Wrong. Last name of the author is Vernick, V-E-R-N-I-C-K, V-E-R-N-I-C-K, Leslie Vernick. So this advice, this counsel is, is hard. And as we go through it, I, I want you to know for what it's worth that I understand how hard it is for the offended person to react in a different way. But it's what we need to do if we're going to progress in our sanctification. But I understand the struggle when you're mistreated. I simply can't condone responding in kind. I understand the struggle. I just can't condone responding in the same kind of way. Now, you know why I understand it? Because I do it. I respond in kind. In ministry, I respond in kind. I have struggled over the years more than once with something not happening the way I think it should go and then responding in a prideful way, responding in a way that doesn't depend on, on Christ for me, to, for me to respond in a Christ-like way many times. So I understand it. I understand it because I've done it and do it. But just because I get it wrong too doesn't mean, well, okay, cool. You see, that's what we do. We say, well, what would you do? I'd probably mess up like you do. How does that help us? No, what we want to do, both of us, all of us, right, is find out what we're supposed to do. How am I supposed to respond? Not just find a kind of happy medium where we all do this. My mom. I mentioned my mom used to do this when we were little. My mom found her identity in being our mom. That's one of the reasons she was just such a tremendous mom. She's with the Lord now. Uh, if, if we Baptists did saints, I'd nominate my mom. Her first name was Adi, O-T-T-I-E, Saint Adi. Just wonderful, kind-hearted, generous, could go on. But one of the Achilles heels for my mom was that she found her identity in being our mom before she found her identity in being in Jesus. And she knew Jesus, and she's in heaven. But nobody ever taught her this. And so she gave her heart and soul to what was her functional identity, which was being our mom. What that meant was she could get manipulated. What that meant was if she got any disapproval in how she was doing it, it killed her. What it meant was she would go out of her way to make sure she was getting that approval because that's where identity was. I have two older brothers, two older brothers who don't know the Lord, nine and seven years older than me, and I watched this dynamic take place. My dad died when I was 11, so from 11 through young adulthood, I have these young adult brothers who don't have a dad around to help manage. And here's my mom who finds her identity in that. You guys see where this can go, right? And so she was always giving stuff to them. 
indulging. She indulged us. We don't even, I don't even to this day know where my mom got the money to indulge. I used to tease her that she was dealing drugs on the side. But here I am growing up in e-course. We don't have it. My dad's died. We're on Social Security. My mom's cleaning rooms at the Windout Hospital, making just a little bit of money. And yet she makes sure that I have every piece of sports equipment there is. In my, in my garage, hockey nets, goalie pads, hockey sticks, baseball bats, everything. We have more stuff in my garage than the neighborhood kids who had two parents at home. Well, you know, I love that, but see, that was my mom. You see what she was doing. And I love her to death for it, and I understand it completely. But her identity was first in being our mom. And whatever your identity is first in, that thing now has the ability to control you. It's your functional identity. Middle of page 24, then, examining Sue's response. Sue's response was typical and expected. Her explanation was accurate when she said that Ken was not a servant leader. Additionally, his poor soul care left her defensive and fragile. She was hurt and embarrassed. But her response employed worldly wisdom and was not beneficial to their marriage. She resorted to rhetorical strategies, almost thinking they would per persuade Ken to agree with her assessment of his poor husbandry. Ken's heart is hard, and progress will only come with repentance. Thus, Sue must align herself with God's ways to help him. To help her get there, she needs to understand the role her identity plays in her response. How does she see herself? And individuals typically do not consciously think about their identity. It's one of those areas where you can drift into it autopilot mode. For instance, we might find our identity in our careers or our relationships. At first glance, these identities seem harmless, but they put you on the wrong path. Christians align themselves in two main categories, either in Christ or in something apart from Christ. So you're finding your identity, I'm finding my identity, either in Christ or in something apart from Christ. Remember when I said that I know my own struggles, where I respond like Sue did in the context of ministry? It's because I'm finding my identity in the ministry. I'm finding my identity as a pastor and being a good pastor. And if something threatens that, now I'm going to respond like Sue did. So we either align ourselves in Christ or in something apart from Christ. As a Christian, Sue's real identity is in Christ. God regenerated her and filled her heart with the Holy Spirit. She's an adopted child of God, an heir with Christ. This new position brings a new purpose to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Sue's desires to be a godly wife that's loved by her husband, though, became her, there's that word I used earlier, functional identity. It morphed into an object of worship. When you put your identity in something apart from Christ, you position yourself to respond in self-reliant and self-righteous ways to protect and defend your purpose and plans. With this functional identity, Sue was ready to give a natural response before Ken even spoke his cruel words. And read that again. She was ready to give a natural response before he even spoke. So her heart was already prepared. All it took was some stimulus, and he's, Ken's happy to be the stimulus. So it wasn't that. All right, so I have some 
water here. I should have filled it up. If I filled it up further, you'd be able to see this. But here I've got this thing with water in it, right? This bottle with water in it. And if I shake it and water comes out, then I ask you, hey, why did water come out? What would you say? You say, because you shook it. Well, the biblical answer is no, because there was water in there. The reason water came out is because there was water in there. And the shaking it just revealed what's there. And that's what happens to Sue. That's what happens to you. It's what happens to me. The situation, the circumstance, the, the stimulus, whatever it is, some person in their words, some situation, something that threatens, something that you hold dear, that's going to reveal what's already there. So Sue was already ready with this heart because she had this functional identity. What Ken did just revealed what was already there. It didn't cause what was already there or didn't cause it to be there. So Sue was ready to give a natural response before Ken even spoke his cruel words. Now you got this mind map. You see that top half of page 25. It shows how this plays out. Natural thinking, it's identity rooted in whatever to gain significance. Identity rooted in whatever <laughs> to gain significance. Because remember, there's only two. You're either identity, it's in Christ, or it's in something other than Christ. So what's it in for you? And the way you respond to what's going on in your life is re revealing some functional identity for you other than in Christ. Now, the bad news here is that thing is really small print, isn't it? Sorry. So if you are now cursing me under your breath, that's revealing something about your heart, okay? And I made the small type just to test you on, on that. No, it is, it is small, that's for sure. But the good news is the bottom half of the page goes through the, the major steps. But look at the, the mind map itself. And if you look at the far left, and in bold there, it says incident. You see that rectangle that just says incident? That's in bold. So it's just saying something happens, an incident happens. Ken goes and makes his wisecrack, unkind remark. Something happens at work. Something happens at school. Just an incident. Somebody says something, something happens. And then the next piece of it says whatever it says. Self-sufficient posture, attempting to something apart from Christ. What is it? Attempting to be something apart from Christ. Okay. So an incident happens, and now in your self-sufficient posture, what's going to come out of that? Now, I can read these other four. You see at the top there, it's spiritual pride. And then we actually have them down in the last half of page 25, boast in self, and then serving the self, and then having a horizontal focus. Now, don't, don't turn the page yet. Hold up. Continue to look at the mind map. So you've got the incident, but now how's the incident going to play itself out? Well, it depends on whether you've got this natural thinking, you've got some functional identity that's going to bear fruit as you move forward. 
So if you look at that chart again, and now instead of looking at the left side at the beginning of the thing, look at the right side at the very end. The very last box to the far right says no peace. And in between, you've got all the stuff that happens. So how, did we, how do you get to no peace? How do you get to the other things that are in the boxes? Hatred, discord, fits of rage. Focus on my, my way. God opposes what it is we're, we're doing. How do you get to all of that? And what this is saying is the way you get to the stuff on the right starts with the stuff on the left. And that's why they could say Sue's heart was already prepared to react the way she did. Now what we normally do is we start over on the right and we try to clean up the stuff on the right. Okay, you've got fits of rage. You've got somebody with an anger problem. We need to deal with your anger problem, so let's teach you anger management. Let's teach you skills in how to handle your anger. When in fact, the thing starts on the left side of the page. The skills should come. Skills are important. They don't come first. All right, middle of page 25 then. All right, uh, one more thing. Sorry. So the stuff on the right starts with the stuff on the left. And... Spiritual pride, boasting in self, self-serving, horizontal focus starts there and then moves out in these other things. Here's one way to think about that, that stuff. Those things are all termites eating away at the foundation of your spiritual health because you don't see them very easily. But what you see is when the foundation starts to collapse. What you see is when the results start to manifest themselves. And now you're over on the right side of the page and you see fits of rage and you see all the stuff happening. That's the collapsing of the foundation. That's the, the superstructure is starting to fall down now. And you're going, what happened? And all the while we've had these termites eating away. And the termites are these things on the left and they are behind the scenes, man. You don't, those are the, not the things you see. So we want to deal with the stuff that we see Give me some skills to handle the stuff I see. And all the while, the termites are still eating away. And you know what happens if you just fix the stuff you see? The termites keep eating. So we'll just have a new thing that we'll have to fix later. So going through those different nodes, you see the, the following. The spiritual pride, the boasting in self, self-serving, and horizontal focus. But we're going to quit. We'll pick it up there next time. Because it's time to quit. What do we got? Two minutes till? All right? Time to quit. But this is what you should do. Bring your paper back with you. And anybody who comes next week doesn't have their paper, it's fine. We'll get you new paper. You just have to come up front to get it. Okay? All right. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day again. Thank you for the blessings that you afford us as your people to be able to be reminded of who you are and what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus through song, through your word, through our interactions with each other, encouraging and being encouraged. Thank you, Lord, for these blessings. Thank you 
that we can take this time to focus on your work of progressively sanctifying your people. And Lord, help us just to admit and keep ever before us that this necessity of being progressively and gradually sanctified is needful for every one of us because all of us are the cracked mirrors. And whatever the state of our mirror, no matter how many cracks or how large, that's where we all are. And that's what you are calling all of us away from, that you're repairing each crack in our mirror to conform us to the image of Jesus. And so, Lord, help us all to want that and help us to cooperate with you in the long-haul work that you're doing of sanctification, to lose the idea that it happens in an event, in an instant, and to do what your word says about seeing the termites that are eating away internally at our spiritual health and then giving rise to our words and our actions. Go with us this week, Lord, as we ponder that, as we think about the ways that we react to things. And to ask ourselves, what kind of spiritual pride do I have going on there? What kind of self-focus and boastfulness do I have? What kind of horizontal focus rather than vertical focus do I have? And then in the weeks ahead, Lord, help us to identify more specifically so that we can indeed change and change at the root level so that indeed better fruit is the result. Grant us safety, we ask you. Bring us back next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.